0: Amen, thank you choir <clears throat> i don 't know about the rest of you, but I feel like i didn 't get as much sleep last night and, uh, and then all of a sudden it's wake up and it 's dark outside, and then it 's uh gloomy because of this rain but aren 't you glad to be at church this morning i 'm glad that you 're here, and if you 're not here y'all feel guilty but uh <laughs> Maybe I'm kidding, I don't know, but it's good to see you. This morning, we are returning to the book of Nehemiah. We've been there for several weeks, <clears throat> and uh, we'll can, we will wrap it up, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. I said we were going to um, make it through the rebuilding of the wall phase, which is basically chapter 6, a little part of chapter 7, in uh, less than 52 days. And so, uh, in two weeks after today, we'll wrap it up, and then we'll turn our attention towards Palm Sunday and the crucifixion of Christ, and... Easter Sunday and the resurrection, so a lot lot to look forward to. This morning, we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. You know, and as you read the book of Nehemiah, it is hard to deny God's sovereignty. You can just see his hand orchestrating so much of what we're reading on the pages of Scripture. Um, Of course, we know, uh, we studied Daniel this past summer, and uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, there was, uh, uh, the the Lord said that people would be brought back from exile. In fact, there was a timetable placed on it, and uh, Daniel referred to it, and uh, when the time arrived, then Zerubbabel led people back to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, a second wave of people went back with Ezra, we even know they began rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, and in this book, <clears throat> we've been uh, reading about Nehemiah brings a third, or comes back, and with this third wave really of return, they begin to the, the finish the work, or really to complete the work of rebuilding the wall. But we can see God involved in orchestrating these events, even in the um, most intimate of details, like the fact that God used Nehemiah to win over Artaxerxes. Uh, He gave Nehemiah favor with King Artaxerxes to bless his return to Jerusalem, but not only that, to bless the work of rebuilding the wall, a project he had put a stop to years prior. So the Lord used him in that way. And just remind you that the king's heart is like channels of water in God's hand, in the Lord's hand. He turns it wherever he wants. We see that happening here. God also gave Nehemiah favor with the people of Judah. They willingly followed him. They gave themselves fully to the work of rebuilding the wall. In chapter um, 3, when we look at that text, we see you had men and women on the wall. You had Um, uh, respected people, common people, you had rulers, Um, you had um, old, young, locals, foreigners, all kinds of people. Everybody had said yes to Nehemiah and were working on the wall. In chapter 4, Nehemiah inspired the people to not only continue building the wall, but to stand in defense against the outsiders, the enemies, who were coming against God's people. Nehemiah was given wisdom in this moment to lead the people of Judah. We also see God's sovereignty in raising up a man like Nehemiah. Nehemiah had integrity coming out of his ears. I mean, he is entirely committed to serving the Lord. He's faithful in prayer. He's decisive in action. What a blessing it was for the people of Judah to be led by a man like Nehemiah. And up until this point, Nehemiah's biggest challenges have been outsiders, people outside the walls coming against God's people. But the true enemy of Nehemiah, the true enemy of God's people, the true enemy of God had schemes and snares that didn't stop with just outside attack. He knows how to stir up internal conflict as well. And that's what we are reading about in Nehemiah chapter 5. This morning, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm going to begin by reading the first seven verses of uh, chapter five. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn there with me. Nehemiah chapter five, verses one through seven. I bet if you don't have a Bible, there's a couple of people over here that could hand it to you, right? So uh, Nehemiah chapter five, verses one through seven. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be here in this moment. What a great blessing you've given us by giving us this church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, a place we can belong and be encouraged, a place where we can be molded into the disciples that you've called us to be. And so, Father, as your people, we come to meet with you now and study your word, and we pray that you'd have your way. We pray that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, convict us where we need to experience conviction, encourage us and exhort us where we need that. And Father, for those who aren't in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, we pray that today you would turn all of our hearts towards the cross of Christ. Lord, you'd be exalted in this moment. We love you and we thank you for this opportunity. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amid a great work for a great God, a great outcry comes up from the Jews among other Jews, or against other Jews, rather, um, revealing that there had become, there had Um, An internal conflict had risen up among the workers on the wall. Nehemiah's next big challenge is going to be dealing with division among the people of God. You know, when the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, he will begin with attacks from within. Uh, You need to know that Satan endeavors to stir up division within the family of faith. And that's what we're going to look at this morning by studying Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, we're going to consider this narrative in three parts. Um, This conflict that we see, the internal conflict here in Nehemiah 5. A great outcry, then a great assembly, and then a great example. So we'll begin with the uh, great outcry in verses 1 through 5. Judah is in crisis. Jerusalem is in a crisis. Poverty is on the rise um, in Jerusalem. And it was beginning to become a very serious issue. And I think there's a couple of contributing factors to the rise of poverty in Jerusalem. First of all, Judah is cut off from its neighbors. We saw that last week. You had Sanballat with the Horonites, um, Tobiah with the Ammonites, Geshep and the Arabs, the Ashdodites. They are all at odds with Jerusalem. And so any sort of uh, commercial activity between them is not happening at this point, right? Second, we find <clears throat> that pollen has really gotten to me. I apologize. <clears throat> I don't know if y'all um, have noticed the pollen around, but uh, <clears throat> I believe this rain may uh, help us out. <clears throat> Second, the, um, the work on the wall and the defense of the city has placed such demands on the people that the folks who um, would have um, been farming otherwise are not doing so right? They are expected to be inside the city gates, working on the wall, defending the city. And so in light of that, there's no crops yielded from their fields. Now, we don't hear a complaint from them. They're not saying, Nehemiah, what have you done? We should be out there in the fields rather than on the wall. That sounds like those that followed uh, Moses in the wilderness, right? What have you done? You've led us out here to die. They don't cry and complain, cry out and complain about Nehemiah. But they cry out and complain, uh, bring a complaint against their Jewish brothers, particularly the wealthy members of the community. Now, how serious was the problem in Jerusalem? It shouldn't take you much time to figure this out as you study the text. I want you to notice right at the beginning of verse 1. It says, now there was a great outcry of the people, and let's look at these next few words, and of their wives. It's become a real problem because the women had had enough, right? I don't know if you ever heard your mother say that to you. I have had enough. You know that I can hear my mother's voice in my ear. Wes, I have had enough. And my brother and I knew. That's the last warning. After that, it is going to be the, you know, the mom almighty is going to unleash her fury in either a physical or a verbal way, right? We had reached the point, I have had enough. The women have had enough. And so they speak up here in Nehemiah and they bring their complaint. And uh, we all know if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Nobody's happy in Jerusalem because the women now are complaining. And their complaint was connected to three big issues. Uh, Verse two says, we've got big families. We've got a lot of hungry mouths. We've got many sons, many daughters, and these boys are hungry. They will eat and eat and eat. And so they're saying we're building this wall. We're defending it against invaders. We're not growing crops. And so we, we've got to be able to feed our children. We've got big families. So they're struggling to keep the kids fed. Second issue related to their complaint is the price of grain has increased to a point that um, they are now having, having to leverage their fields, sell their fields in order to have the money to afford the grain they needed, right? Inflation, famine, demand increase, and so uh, they, they don't have the money to do that, and so now they're having to sell their house. It says actually says, sell their houses, their fields, and their vineyards, every bit of it. So these are landowners. In other circumstances, these folks would not be in a financial crisis, but there's something specific happening in Jerusalem, and it's created this con- this issue. The third part of their complaint was that they had to borrow money in order to pay the royal tax. Um, Nehemiah had won over favor or won over King Artaxerxes, but uh, King Artaxerxes still demanded taxes on the fields. So the fields that they should be working, but they're not, is not yielding crops, yet they still have to pay uh, taxes on these fields. And so in order to pay the taxes, they're leveraging, mortgaging their property in order to do that, and... um, So we have problem on top of problem on top of problem. Real crisis there. But the complaint is not just a cry for assistance. It's a cry for justice. Because as you notice in verse 5, the faithful um, Jews who are working on the wall, dealing with the economic crisis, are in such distress, their children were being sold into slavery. And it was to their brothers and sisters, the people in the Jewish community, It was debt slavery was taking place in Jerusalem. The creditors were not the Ashdodites or the Ammonites or the Horonites. It's the Jews. And they're taking in these children as slaves. It says even their daughters coming into bondage. Likely as like second wives in the household. So this is a real shameful thing that's taking place. The wealthy citizens of Jerusalem are exploiting their neighbors and friends. Now as we read about this crisis, it sounds a little bit like you know, the front page of the Wall Street Journal um, right now. Because we also know economic crisis. I don't know if you saw it this weekend. I was reading online, but the lead article in the journal this weekend was about this, the uh, failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, the collapse of the bank, the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. $209 billion in assets. So, of course, that has rattled our markets in America. And it's already been rattled. We have interest rates climbing, even with a good job report. We're expecting that it's still going to be an increase at their next meeting. Um, inflation is on the rise. You've noticed it. They say that overall, cost of food in the last year has gone up by 10%. And some of you are like, it's more because the egg's like by 70%. You know, nobody knows why, but that's what's happening right now. And then we've got this um, uh, collision course between Congress and the White House over dealing with raising the national debt uh, limit. So the point is, we know what economic crisis is like. They're facing it too. And it's creating division within the family, the household of faith, the family of God, the nation. And the crisis in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 5 is not a minor bump. It's serious trouble. And it's not just about poverty. God was careful to give Israel and Judah instructions for how to deal with poverty in their uh, new nation. um, And how to care for those who, because of internal, um, uh, because of economic crisis might be impoverished, of what to do with them. The Old Testament law actually governed how the people should care for those who experience need. It's all throughout the Old Testament, but in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 19, it says, You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest. So that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you're about to enter to possess. So they were given instructions of how to deal with lending to one another. And you'll notice the law doesn't eradicate poverty. But it's there to help give guidelines so that those with means don't take advantage of those who are experiencing crisis. And they could lend with interest to foreigners, but not to their fellow fellow countrymen. Why? Because they belong to a community. They were not islands unto themselves. They were not to live like they were islands unto themselves. To whom much was given, much was expected. So they were to see themselves as not just individuals, but as members of the whole. And they had a responsibility to care for their brothers and sisters in need. There are a few safety nets that the Old Testament law gave to the nation of Israel to prevent systemic poverty. For example, if a family experienced real crisis, they could sell their land in order to uh, have the money they need. But to prevent systemic poverty... The Hebrew law said that after every 50th year, the land would return to the original owner. Because you've met crisis now, but it's not going to ruin your family in the future. Um, after In the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, it would return back to the original owner. Additionally, <clears throat> the law prevented them from making a profit off of food. And that was because it was primarily an agrarian society. And so everybody worked the fields. But even the people who owned the land were not were commanded not to work the edges of the field. That's where the people who had need could come and receive food they need. We know that because that's what Ruth did, right? In Boaz's field. Finally, if somebody was in dire straits, they could sell themselves into slavery. But after six years, they were considered the debt had been covered. In the seventh year, they were set free. Okay, let's talk about the issue that we find in Nehemiah 5. The issue is not an economic crisis, okay? It was that the people had abandoned the scriptures. They had unhitched themselves from the law. And in return, poverty was rising in the city, creating a crisis for the people. It was dividing the nation. And now rebuilding of the wall was being coming to a halt. Why? Because the people were not obeying the law. <clears throat> Here's the application. The scriptures are our best defense in times of trial and tribulation sorry our scriptures are our best defense in times of trial and tribulation when we find ourselves in a crisis the best place to find the answer is right here and to live in accord with what it says right here the nation had a crisis the word dictated what they should do so the enemy of your soul Would love to lead you away from the scripture. Satan would want nothing more or or nothing less than to get you to doubt the truth of God's word. He's on record. He's quoted as saying, did God really say? Well, I think he still says that line. He probably has whispered it into your ear. "Ah, I don't know that that's applicable anymore. He didn't really mean that. They've taken that out of context. That's, what the enemy, that's one of his favorite tools in his toolbox, is to get you to doubt God's Word, to get you to live your life on your own without the guidance that you find in God's Word. And I would say there is no faster route for the people of God, the family of faith, to experience division than by abandoning God's Word. By saying, there's a more pragmatic approach Maybe these things need to be updated. We do that. We divide the family of faith. So how did Satan do it here in Nehemiah 5? One of his favorite weapons, selfishness. Selfishness. If I can get you to think only of yourself, then I can do a whole lot of damage, not only to you, but to others and to the family of faith. If I can get you just to think of yourself, that's what selfishness is. He'll have the victory before we even realize he's at work. Because we've become a selfish people. What we find in Nehemiah 5 is that people didn't trust God. They did not trust God. They acted in their own best interests. They saw an opportunity. They said, hmm, here's a good opportunity. And selfishly, they decided, I am going to do what I can to serve myself. I'm going to take advantage of. I'm going to exploit others so that I can be happy. That is selfishness. It is sinful. And it will do damage in the church. So it's one thing to face a common enemy. But what about... Brother against brother. That's what's happening in Nehemiah 5. So a great outcry from the people leads to a great assembly. Now I want you to notice here in uh, verses 6, uh, Nehemiah's response. It says he's very angry. He's very angry. But he has to be careful here, right? The people that he has a problem with are probably workers on the wall. Maybe some of the leaders in some of the areas. So he's got to think this through. He has to be careful. Because the people who are doing this perhaps might be some of his greatest servants on the wall. So this is internal conflict. He can't mobilize against Ballot. He's got to approach the people. So in his anger, the text says he consults himself. I said to Melinda Timmerman this morning, I said, it's, uh, it's a great verse that says he consults himself. She says, I need to underline that to remind myself, I got to consult myself before I say what I think, right? Uh, we have an incredible operations team here at First Baptist. Melinda's a part of that. And uh, we have others, custodians, and um, facilities folks. One of them is Mr. Gene Sumter. And if you've ever met Mr. Gene, then you've seen a smile on your fa- his face, and you've been encouraged in some way. He has these little pithy sayings and these songs he sings that are essentially encouragement towards God's word. And one of them he says is he said, you know, if you, somebody's dealing with a problem, he says, Wes, I tell him, take two, think it through. Well, that's what happens here. Nehemiah must have known Gene Sumter. Because he took two, and he thought it through. And he comes out of that with his anger, and he still confronts the people. He approaches the nobles, the rulers, the wealthy folks in the community, and he rebukes them. He says, you're doing wrong. And at the end of verse 7, he calls this great assembly. Now, we have a lot of lawyers in our church, and it's enough to make anybody nervous. We even have some judges in the room. And I wonder if you folks recognize your profession here. In verse 7. See, I think Nehemiah has taken them to court. He has a, a, a charge against them. So he brings a great assembly. Maybe it was in a low country court. And he brings them all there. And he assembles the nobles. He brings the rulers. And he's going to make his charge. This is what he says, verses 8 through 11. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent could not find a way to say, just for a second here, he's, he's basically saying, remember, we were all in exile, remember? And we, we did a lot to bring some of these back, people back from bondage. Now you're willing to take those folks freed from bondage and buy and sell them here among ourselves? Goes on, verse 9, again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise I, my brothers and my servants, are lending the money and the grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day. Their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money and of the grain. The new wine and the oil that you're extracting from them. He's saying to them, uh, he's charging them that what you're doing is wrong. They may have thought of themselves as merely taking advantage of an opportunity. But it was selfish. And it was driving a wedge in the nation, and it was creating a problem for the country. So he appeals, first of all, to their love. He calls them brothers over and over and over again. He says, these are your brothers. How could you do this to them? And then the second thing he does is he appeals to their reverence for God. He says, should you not walk in the fear of our God? It's a good verse to memorize. It's a good verse to underline. You might need to write it down. Should you not live in reverence, or should not you not walk in the fear of our God? You might need to take that one to work with you. And whenever you have that situation, maybe it's just gray area or maybe you don't know what the right thing is to do in this opportunity. No, it won't affect anybody else. It's not that big a deal. And then you remind yourself, should I not walk in the fear of my God? Well, that's what he says to them. Then he appeals to their personal example. He says, look, I lend and I don't apply usury. And then he calls action. He says, give back to them this very day. They respond, verses 12 and 13. They said, we will give it back and we require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to their promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord Then the people did according to the promise. The nobles and rulers said, you're right. We're wrong. We'll do as you say. But they're in a court of law. So Nehemiah brings the priests up, hands the Bible, raise your right hand. They took an oath, right? That's kind of what's happening here. And then he makes this closing argument. He's real demonstrative about it. He's got his robes, and he stands up in front of the people, and he says, and just like this, and he shakes his robes. And so out of the folds of his garment or the pockets, his possessions start falling out. And he says, and may this be done to you. Everything fall out of your pockets if you don't do as you've said today, that you will do. And their reply is, amen. Let it be. That's what that means, let it be. And then unlike our courts, they start praising the Lord together. When the people are confronted with the truth, when the people of God are confronted with the truth, they immediately respond in repentance and with action. The people of God when we read the truth of God's word, are not to walk and say, "Way," and say, that was a good thought. Or we're not to say, somebody needed to hear that. The Lord is probably speaking to you. And you ought to say, God, how am I to respond? If the word of God convicts you, the only appropriate response is to repent. So the application here is for you to say to God, search me, O God. And then point out those wicked ways and then to walk away in repentance, to live a different way, to not keep walking in it. The other thing I would say is they're in a family of faith, just like we are. We have folks around us who we need to confront with the truth, just like Nehemiah did. Now we're to do it in love, right? That's what Ephesians 4 says. It says, as a result, we are no longer to be children Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, we've got to put that to bed. But what do we do now? Speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects into Him who's the head, even Christ. There's too much at stake for us to leave sin unchecked. Unchecked sin in our lives and in our church family leads to division. Unchecked sin. Means I have compromised my trust in God's word. Unchecked sin wreaks havoc in the family of faith. So the great cry of Judah leads to a great assembly in Judah. The godly response seems to be influenced by the great example they have before him So look at verses 14 through 19. I'm not going to read through all that. But the verses are, aren't, um, don't read like a biographical timeline like the rest of chapter 5. Um, It reads as if this is commentary that Nehemiah has put in there so that we can kind of understand, you know, the situation and his own convictions here. In verse 14, he points out he was governor of Jerusalem for 12 years. So he's kind of given comment on what he had done in this role. And this would have been the highest um, ranking position in Jerusalem under the Persian rule. So with that job came certain perks. And, uh, you know, primarily it was food. And Nehemiah did not... He was unwilling to take advantage of the job in order to enrich himself. You see in verse 15, it says, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants dominated the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Nehemiah is a man of integrity, and he was a servant by conviction. So the text points that he even fed and housed people that he was supposed to, care for under the dime of the governorship he does it on his own dime he cares for other people in the community he was not willing to let others bear the load that he wouldn't bear himself why would he not take advantage of his rightful privileges as governor because as James Hamilton points out in his commentary Nehemiah knew something better than food and money Nehemiah knew something better than food and money rather than take advantage of people in order to score money and food he knew faith in God and he knew love for people he would rather take advantage of faith in God which is trusting God for outcomes rather than trying to make it work out on my own I'll trust him took advantage of faith in God and took advantage of love for people so that he could be a better servant to people this is one of those profiles we should read and say this is the type of leaders we want Every time we come to an election, that's what we ought to, we ought to read this and say, this is the kind of leader we want, right? Somebody who's not seeking to be served, but somebody who's seeking to serve. Now we have to be careful here because the hero of this story is not Nehemiah. The hero of this story is not Nehemiah. The hero of this story is the same hero of every story in the scriptures. And it's Jesus. Because Jesus is the true and the better Nehemiah. Nehemiah was lacking. Jesus is not. Jesus truly came. He shed divinity in order to take up humanity, in order to serve people and serve the Lord God. In Philippians 2, verses uh, 6 through 11, it says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came to the earth seeking Something greater than worldwide fame or glory. He sought to glorify the Father, and he was motivated by love. Jesus came because God loves you. Jesus came so that God could save you from your sins. Have you believed Jesus for salvation? See, you don't have to earn it. You just receive it by grace, unmerited favor, through faith, belief in God. Have you believed in Jesus for salvation and experienced the forgiveness of sins? Jesus is the type of leader anybody would want to follow. Self-sacrificing, loving, entirely benevolent. If you're not following him, would you follow him today? Nehemiah concludes the chapter with the phrase in verse 19. says, remember me, oh my God. Nehemiah is saying, don't fail to act on my behalf, God. I'm serving you, don't fail to act on my behalf. And guess what? He won't. I think Nehemiah is also looking forward to the day of reckoning, a day of judgment. He's saying, God, don't forget me on that day. And guess what? He won't. The great cry led to a great assembly where they were able to follow the great example they had in Nehemiah. We have an enemy today who is seeking to distract us from the mission we have of making disciples. And a great tool in the box of our enemy is the weapon of division. If he can turn brother against brother and sister against sister, then he can be confident that the work to be done, the labor on the wall, will come to a halt. Evangelism will be put on the back burner. The wind will be taken out of discipleship's sails. If we're not united as the body of Christ, then how can we accomplish all that God has called us to do? Our greatest defense is the Word of God. Is your life built on the Word? Are you tethered here? Because this is the only thing that will solve our crises and the only thing that will carry us forward as a church, serving him faithfully as he called us to do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that we have in Nehemiah. But, Father, more than that, we are thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus who came to rescue sinners. Lord, we pray for those that need to receive you today. Lord, may you speak to their hearts. May lives be changed. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen our choir's gonna sing. And right now is a moment of response. The Lord's speaking to your heart, call out to him in prayer. As our choir sings right where you are, you say yes to the Lord Jesus.